Maigo Vannin. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and in this episode, I'm going to talk about the Silmarillion again, which, as all the really nerdy Tolkien fans know, is kind of the historical backdrop to everything else in Middle-earth. But in this particular video, what I want to talk about is how would you bring this to the big screen? Or, you know, if in the alternative, maybe, maybe as a, a TV miniseries or something like that. Because there have been people on the internet basically talking about, you know, bringing it to either movie form or miniseries form because it's really the only major thing left in Tolkien's Middle-earth universe that needs kind of a movie treatment. And in this video, I'm just going to talk about my basic idea for if you're going to do that, how would you do it well and do it in a way that isn't going to be awkward and, you know, really kind of take away from what Tolkien was trying to do. So with that in mind, let's get started. So the first key point, obviously, in bringing the Silmarillion to movie or miniseries form is recognizing the parts into which it's kind of broken up. Um, and I've done a video kind of overviewing the, the Silmarillion and how it's structured before, but just as a really brief recap, you've essentially got the creation of the world, the initial activity of the greater angels in the world, You've got the appearance of elves, and then their subsequent resettling into Valinor, where the, the angels are all residing. And then you've got a final kind of climax point between the one bad angel who kind of represents Satan in the mythology that leads to a bunch of the elves returning to Middle-earth, chasing him down to recover the Silmarils, which he stole. So that's kind of the first part of the book, and then... It's not that long, uh, but then you have the, the rest of the book, which is properly called the Quinta Silmarillion. It's, it's really the meat of the story, is made up of kind of interspersed um, background-ish elements and then three or four really main stories that, that are a lot more like the Lord of the Rings. They focus on particular characters and things that they do. Um, there are other elements that talk about um, particular characters, but they're usually very short and deal with mainly things you need to know as background for the other major stories. So with that in mind, the way I think you'd have to start anything about the Silmarillion would be kind of the the creation story aspect would have to be kind of narrated in kind of the same way that Peter Jackson did with uh, the the intro to the Fellowship of the Ring movie where he kind of gives a background of the history of the rings and some of this other stuff to give you a little bit of a history. Um, I think you'd have to do more or less the same thing with the creation story because there's not really a way to, to visually represent that. I mean, you could try, but it's never going to satisfy anybody and it there's no good way to do it. So just kind of narrate that as a, as a background and maybe even bring parts of it in as, um, it could be even like narrated in a way that's Bilbo telling Frodo or, or some other of the other interested hobbits, Mary, Pippin, Sam, because Bilbo as part of his stay in Rivendell actually did a lot of looking into old Elvish legend and things like that. So Bilbo would actually be one to know this. So we could still kind of bring Ian Holm back in to tie everything together and he could be the connecting piece basically telling Frodo, you know, 
here's what happened way, 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 way long ago. Um, or you could do it as Elrond telling it, or Galadriel, because Galadriel actually goes back. She's like a sec second generation or maybe third generation elf, but she was born in Valinor and is one of the oldest you know, elves still on Middle-earth, maybe the oldest elf. So she would know more or less all these events, um, not necessarily from a first-person point of view, but some of them she would know as a first-person perspective, and a lot of the other ones she would know from hearing about it after the fact. Elrond, of course, would also be a good one because he's the lore master of Middle-earth. He is the person to go to if you need to know anything about Middle-earth's history, its secrets, anything like that, and that's pretty clear in, in the book. So any of those three people, I think, would make good narrators for kind of the initial creation story, and then that's when you can kind of move into something more meaty that actually gets represented as a story on film. And so where would we start with that? That's the next section. This is where it actually starts to get a little bit trickier because most of the really important stories that are kind of semi-novel length in the Silmarillion only really start after men appear on the scene, and they all feature men very heavily. Uh, you've got the story of Baron and Luthien, Baron, of course, being the man in that story. You've got the Children of Hurin, which focuses on uh, Turin, Turambar, and um, oh gosh, Ninial his sister, and his mother, Morwen, to a lesser extent, but they're all, you know, it's one family of men. And then you've got the story of the fall of Gondolin, which focuses on largely the actions and events surrounding Tuor, the son of Huor, who is Hurin's brother, and so Tuor and Turin are actually cousins. Um, there are elves involved in all these stories, of course, but they focus mostly on the actions of men. And there's literary reasons for that. Tolkien, I could, you know, get into that, but that's not the point of this video. Um, the main point is almost all of the really big central events are kind of started or, or pushed along by men. But men kind of come along a little bit later on the scene. So you get a lot of background material that is, you know, can be interesting reading and is important to know, but you can't really, it's hard to make a movie out of most of the material leading up to that stuff, because you've got things like, you know, Morgoth or Melkor um, causes Feanor to kind of rebel against the Valar, he uh, steals the Silmarils, he makes his way back to Middle-earth, uh, you can get, um, the return of the elves to Middle-earth and their initial wars with Melkor and Morgoth. And then you've got some background material about the father of Luthien Tenuviel, who figures heavily in the Baron story. Her father, Thingol, marries a Maiar, which is basically a lower class of angel named Melion. And they kind of set up their kingdom, and there's some important stuff about that. There's also some important things about another elf who's kind of called a dark elf, um, whose name escapes me at the moment. <laughs> um, but he figures heavily into the fall of Gondolin story. But all these things are kind of really short little episodes. They don't have a whole lot to them, and you can't really bring them all together into one story. So I think you'd kind of have to skip a lot of that kind of material 
and used that as kind of backdrop material for the main three stories. I mean, really the stories that get told are going to have to be in the movies or miniseries or however it gets done, if it ever does, are the Baron and Luthien story, the Turin, Turambar story, and the Fall of Gondolin. Those are the ones that really get movie treatment. The other ones you can't Rest of the, the material in the, in the Silmarillion just doesn't lend itself to being made into movies, and that probably is why this may not ever happen, because it's just really hard to bring some of this to the silver screen. But if you were going to do it, the way you would have to do it is all the creation story plus the relevant other backstory for whatever movie you're making would have to be kind of included as either flashbacks or similar type of uh, narrated something in the movies. Now, the first of the movies that you'd have to make, really, would be the Baron and Luthien story. And the reason for that is it's chronologically the first one that happens. So I think the way you would have to go about it is if you make Baron and Luthien first, you would have to go into some backstory on Thingol and Melion because that obviously figures very heavily into that legend. Um, and you could also bring in a lot of the main information about how the elves came back to Middle-earth and the initial wars that they had with Morgoth trying to recover the Silmarils and then kind of how it settled down before the arrival of men on the scene. So you could kind of cover a lot of that in Baron and Luthien, and it wouldn't be, wouldn't be that hard to do. You could have a couple of flashbacks because Baron... Uh, in his travels, runs across various different elves who would know a lot about um, the things that happened. I mean, he ends up uh, becoming a friend with uh, an elven king named Felagund. That's actually not his original name, though. Finrod is his original name, and he gets the name Felagund because he um, makes a uh, he basically makes his fortress underground, and it's, it has to do with delving caves. That's I don't remember the exact etymology of the name, but that's how it goes. But he was there at the time of when Morgoth stole the Silmarils. So we could kind of have him be a way of narrating or giving us a flashback to some of the things that happened in the uh, the original uh, rebellion, sort of, and how, how the elves came back to Middle-earth, and we could get that through him. We could also get it through Thingol himself, because obviously... Thingol wants Baron to recover one of the Silmarils as the price for marrying his daughter Luthien. So he knows at least some of how that went down, presumably. He knows that it happened. We might be able to get some of the initial material from him, and then Felagun could fill in details later, something like that. Uh, but that's a way that you could get some of that material in. And then uh, at some point you could also have... Um, You'd have to get the entrance of men onto the scene at some point, but that's not hugely important, and it can be kind of just referenced uh, a little offhandedly. That wouldn't have to have like a, a major exposition point in the movie. Um, but then the rest of it can be very much focused on Baron and Luthien. I mean, that would have to start with Baron with his father Bara here, and you would get even there some background on Felagun because... Felagund gave his ring to Barahir, who then gives it to Baron, who then uses it as his way of getting favors out of Felagund. It's a long, there's a whole big thing. That's actually the ring that Aragorn wears in The Lord of the Rings. So, I mean, there's a huge amount of story material just on that. 
But that's, I think, how you would do Baron and Luthien. You'd have to bring in the elements uh, in that movie of the rebellion in Valinor, how the elves came back to Middle-earth, some of the initial setup of how they established their kingdoms and some of the initial wars, um, how Feanor gets killed, because those are all kind of important to the way Baron's quest goes in the aftermath. So I think that's how you'd have to do that. So now let's kind of cover the other two major stories and, and that'll bring in a lot of the other background information. Now the tricky part with the uh, the other two stories, Turin and Tuor, uh, they intertwine a little bit. There is actually one point in the stories where Turin arrives at a lake and Tuor also happens to be at the same lake and he sees Turin, but they don't really talk Turin at this point is very distraught over some really bad stuff that's happened over in his life, and uh, he's just kind of, he's almost gone mad because of his sorrow. But the main point is, you have these two stories that intersect a little bit, and the two main characters are cousins, and yet they don't even know who each other are, uh, and Turin doesn't even necessarily know that Tuor is there. So it gets a little tricky because these two stories are in some to some degree, simultaneous with each other. Um, more importantly, though, the Turin story references the Baron story to some extent because Turin ends up being fostered by Thingol uh, because Thingol kind of feels bad for Baron and his family and the more the broader family of the tribe of men that he came from and takes uh, Turin as a fosterling partially for that reason. And so there's also the element of Turin wants to do great deeds because he thinks that he can be awesome like Baron was. And Thingol kind of tries to tell him, there's not that many Barons in the world who just chill. Uh, but anyway, the point being, after the Baron and Luthien story, you start to get a little bit more entangled as you go along. There's more and more references to each other in these different stories. So it gets a little more complicated to bring to... Uh, a, a movie or miniseries experience, but it could be done, I think. And with Turin Turambar, you would probably get a little bit more of the backstory of um, the Thingol and Melian kingdom and some of that. Not necessarily a lot more, because you'd have to cover a lot of that in Baron and Luthien. There's not a lot of other backstory you would have to have. There is a little bit, probably, um, because by this point, you have to explain why Turin, the son of Hurin, is a fosterling, and that involves some of the wars that go on between the elves and Morgoth. And at this point, Morgoth is kind of, he hasn't really crushed the elves yet, but he's starting to make inroads and, and become a much more dangerous enemy, and he's begun kind of the conquest of the section of Middle-earth where this happens, which is called Beleriand. Uh, at this point in the story, there's been a major sea change in the fortunes of the elves and men, because at the time of Baron and Luthien, everything was kind of kosher. You know, I mean, the elves were keeping Morgoth in, and they couldn't get to him, but Morgoth couldn't break out either. By the time Turin, son of Hurin, comes along, the opposite is the case. The reason or at least a lot of the reasons for the events in the Turin story are because of Morgoth's conquest of certain parts of what were elven or human uh, kingdoms or lands. And that 
forms a huge amount of backdrop. So you'd have to get some of that involved. And that, I think, would probably best be handled as kind of a, a, a narration type thing, kind of a segue narration from the end of Baron's story to the beginning of Turin's story. It would be kind of like, I mean, not to be ham-handed about it, but it would be of the nature of last time in Silmarillion we saw Baron and Luthien. Since then, this has happened, and that sets you up for the next thing. Now, you don't want to do it, obviously, in that cheesy of a way, but it could be done in an artful way that basically explains, you know, since the events of the Baron and Luthien story, you've got all these things that lead up to Turin. And then you can kind of just get into Turin's story. Turin eventually... He he starts out basically um, he's still living with his mother and basically they're all slaves to the evil men that have been given the land that they inhabited. But his mother ends up sending him to Thingol's realm to be fostered, and that leads to all the other events that happen. And this one is such a long story by itself. You might actually have to make this one into two movies. Turin's story is huge. There is a lot that goes on. Um, the one last piece of kind of background that you would have to cover, um, well, nah, you could probably cover this in the next one. So let me let me not get there yet. Uh, you kind of would. Okay, let me just talk about it now. <laughs> it's complicated because again, everything gets so entwined. This is really more relevant to Tuor's story, but it's also relevant to Turin and uh, his family because before the war that happens that leaves Turin more or less an orphan. He's not technically an orphan because his father's alive. He's just held captive. Um, Hurin and Huor, the two brothers that father Turin and Tuor respectively, um, at some point are, they kind of end up in Gondolin, which is a hidden city, which is not meant to be known about by anybody except the people who live there. Uh, and I'll get to a lot more of that detail later. But one of the reasons why um, Hurin is important in and of himself is because he actually knows that this city exists and sort of kind of where it is. He doesn't know exactly where it is because he's lost when he finds it. Um, but when Morgoth captures him in the war that takes place just before the events of Turin's story, he wants Turin to tell him you know, where is this kingdom? Because he knows about it too, vaguely. He kind of has vague rumors of it and whatnot, but he doesn't know where, and he can't find out. And, it, and that's the point, is it's supposed to be kind of like the last refuge before, you know, the ultimate fall of the elves, and they try to go back to the west. But the main point is, he is so mad at Hurin that he won't tell him. And in fact, Hurin laughs in his face. He's like, you're pathetic. You can't even get what you want. Uh, that he basically forces him to sit in this chair and in some way or other, he gives Hurin the sight that he has to see all these different things going on in Middle-earth, but particularly the things that happen to his family, especially Turin and Niniel. And he lays a curse on them, and he's basically using this as a form of torture, basically saying... You're going to watch your entire family just be destroyed by this curse I placed on them because you laughed at me. So, anyway, that that's the extent to which you have to kind of have a little bit of that that backstory. 
you could say that for the the fall of Gondolin story, but then you'd be missing out something kind of important for Turin. So, but anyway, once you have all that backstory, you can kind of just get into Turin's story and go. Um, most of the other backstory is not relevant at this point. So, I mean, you get um, once you get going into his story, it gets more interesting, and the rest of it you can kind of it just flows by itself. So. That being said, the only other major story left is the fall of Gondolin, Gondolin and kind of the end of the Silmarillion cycle. So let's cover that, and that'll wrap up pretty much all the rest of the backstory material that we need to cover, too. The tricky part with the fall of Gondolin story is you have to know the most backstory for this one, and it would make this one maybe the most difficult to bring to um, a, a movie, I think there's a lot of different moving parts to it. So um, one of the things I mentioned earlier as backstory is there's this dark elf whose name I forget. Maelduin, maybe? I can't remember. And I don't have my copy of the Silmarillion because I've loaned it. Foolish me. Um, anyway, this dark elf is actually the son of a, a member of the royal family of those who are in Gondolin. So the leader of the city of Gondolin um, is by right at some point high king of all the elves, but that by the time that happens, he's already hidden away and nobody knows where he is, so it's kind of irrelevant, sort of. Um, but he is king of his own little realm regardless, and his, uh, I think it was his sister, um, yeah, I, it was pretty sure it was his sister goes off and gets lost and is taken by this... Um, other elf out there who's a really great smith, that's kind of the, the one thing we know about him, who forged a sword out of a meteorite, essentially, which plays kind of heavily at some point. Wait, I'm thinking of a different. I might be getting my facts confused. Let me take that back. Uh, anyway, there's a lot going on beyond just this, but the bare things you would need to know for the Fall of Gondolin story is she has a son because this guy essentially kidnaps her and keeps her, and uh, eventually she and the son escape back to Gondolin. The other guy comes and tries to get him, but that doesn't pan out for him because by the time he gets there, he's kind of outnumbered, and the king of Gondolin's like, yeah, you couldn't have done that in the first place, so you're not getting anything. Anyway... You have to get that little bit of backstory because the son ends up growing up and being kind of the main antagonist in the story. There's also another, you have to explain the existence of the Kingdom of Gondolin itself, and that goes into a lot of backstory about one of the Valar named Ulmo, who's kind of the Poseidon figure in the mythology. He's he's the lord of the waters. Um, he's the one who takes the most interest in trying to help the exiled elves the rest of the Valar are kind of like, man, those guys were just jerks. And almost like, yeah, they were, but we still don't want Morgoth to just utterly crush him. <laughs> uh, so, Olmo goes to Turgon, who is the king of Gondolin, and at some point, while he's still living near the, the shores of Middle-earth, and basically comes to him in a dream and tells him, you're going to be the last kingdom standing because sooner or later, Morgoth is going to crush everybody, and it's going to be really bad, and we're going to need somebody left to keep trying to send messengers to the Valar who can actually make it. So you get 
Ulmo tells him basically, I'm going to show you where you're going to build a secret hidden kingdom and you're going to leave behind a set of armor and some weapons and whatnot for the person who is going to end up coming to you as a messenger from me to tell you when the time is right to leave that kingdom because it too will be discovered and eventually fall. But in the meantime, it's still a safe refuge. So you've got a little bit of backstory there. And I think that would best be handled kind of the way that uh, Peter Jackson handled the intro to the Fellowship of the Ring. That part could be done cinematically. It wouldn't have to be narrated or given as a back flat, a flashback or anything like that. I think that could be done, you know, as a as a what just part of the movie essentially. But you know, have it happen and then X number of years later, and then what happens there is the next the next major thing that would happen is. You then see Tuor, who at, at the first time we meet him in the story is actually a slave, I think, of, I don't remember if it was evil men or, or orcs, but one way or the other, he's a slave. He ends up escaping. He ends up um, wandering for a long period of time. He ends up finding the uh, deserted kingdom on the shores and the armor and whatnot, and Ulmo appears to him in a vision or a dream or just physically appearing to him, and I don't remember which, but, and basically tells him, look, here's what all this stuff is, and you're the guy that's supposed to pick that stuff up and go to Gondolin. So, then you end up, he runs into an elf who can actually show him how to get there, which is all kind of part of the plan, but you have to go into all that backstory. Now, the backstory with the the dark elf and his son or whatever, the the one who ends up being the antagonist, that would probably have to come as a flashback slash exposition that happens after Tour reaches Gondolin. So you would either have to maybe hear that from the princess of Gondolin who tells Tour because, and that wouldn't be a bad idea because the princess is kind of the point of the love triangle because the other elf loves her and Tuor loves her. So, I mean, if Tuor could end up getting some of this information from her, or it could be just kind of, there are different ways you could do it, I guess, but that would be the harder one to incorporate into the story. So anyway, the main thing is those are the two main elements of the backstory you'd have to get, but they're both kind of long and involved. And so it gets a little bit trickier. The one you could handle you know, the the actual establishment of Gondolin you could handle just by that could be the first part of the movie. The one with the the other elf, I think is a little trickier because you have to explain a lot of information in a way that doesn't really flow well with the rest of the movie. You just kinda have to know it. And so you'd have to get it as exposition one way or the other. It would have to be explained. Um probably to Tour by either the princess or even the king himself, Turgon but anyway, once you get to that point, you can kind of move along with the story. And the fall of Gondolin as a story is not that long, um, but it leads to basically the end of the Silmarillion. And so it kind of gets drawn out and you could basically turn the rest of the Silmarillion into the rest of the fall of Gondolin story. After the fall of Gondolin, Tour and his wife, uh, he actually does marry the princess, um, they escape with a bunch of other elves and they go back to the shores of Middle Earth and they end up uh, finding and uh, their family gets intertwined with the descendants of Baron and Luthien who have the Silmaril. So 
Um, you'd also, at some point, probably have to bring in a little bit of backstory about what happens to Thingol's kingdom and how the Silmaril gets passed down to Baron and Luthien's descendants, because Thingol gets killed, his kingdom gets destroyed, and um, a lot of weird stuff happens there that you'd have to kind of bring in as exposition. And I think the best way to do that would be once Tuor and um, Idril Celebrindal, who is his wife, meet up with Baron and Luthien's descendants, the easiest thing to do would probably be just to point, just to have somebody on the Baron and Luthien side of the family tree say, you know, this is kind of what happened. You know, get another exposition scene. And then once you do that, the rest of the story kind of just flows by itself and you don't have to have a whole lot of backstory. Um, but at that point, you, you get the the main events that happen are the sons of Feanor who created the Silmarils are still trying to fulfill their oath to recover the Silmarils, and they find out where um, these other elves are, and they know where the Silmaril is, and so they're trying to get it, and that creates a lot of tension among the elves themselves, and anyway, at some point, the, the children of uh, Tuor and the Baron and Luthien's descendants end up marrying each other, and so you end up with Arendil, who is the final character who makes it back to the West, and that's probably where you would want to kind of end the story, and because the rest of it, again, kind of doesn't lend itself to cinematic, um, there's no real way to do it, because after that, essentially what you have is the host of the Valar, and they're lesser angels and uh, and the elves that stayed in Valinor, they all come back and they just basically trounce Morgoth. That would be, I think, a little bit overwhelming for the end of the story, but I think what, what, what you would want to do is have it, the story continue down to the point of Arendil finally making it to the west, to the Undying Lands, and presenting his case, and then you kind of get by implication what's going to happen after that. Uh, so that's how I would end it rather than have it end in the huge, you know, final war that ends the whole thing, because I think that would be a little bit too much action for the end of a movie. But anyway, that's kind of how I would cover the Silmarillion and turn it into either a series of three movies or a mini-series or, you know, maybe four movies, because Turin Turinbar is such a long story. Um, anyway, that's, that's my idea, and I think the way you would want to do it, mainly, is you would use the Silmarillion as published for most of the backstory material, but for the the three main movie uh, plot lines, you would want to use um, the not so much the Silmarillion versions of the stories, but probably the ones that have been published more recently by Christopher Tolkien, The Children of Hurin, and The um, Baron and Luthien, which is coming in May 2017. Maybe he'll even make it to the Fall of Gondolin and publish a separate one on that don't know. Um, but if he does, you'd want to use that too, because those have a lot more detail. They're a lot more novel-like in their presentation. A lot less. The Silmarillion is much more just kind of a almost epic history. It's not as much of a novel as Lord of the Rings is, and so you'd want to use the more novel-like versions that have been published separately, I think, as the main source material. But anyway, that's how I would do it. So that wraps up this video. So, that was a lot to go over. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Hope you thought it was thought-provoking and maybe a little interesting. If you have some different ideas for how the Silmarillion should be turned into a film-slash-miniseries experience, please comment below. 
uh, interested in hearing different people's thoughts on this because it's definitely a subject that is complicated and requires a lot of thought process. I'm not a screenwriter, but I think I think there are certain things that are kind of obvious on this one. Some of them, though, could definitely be done in different ways. So, like I said, if you have different thoughts on that, just please comment below. If you like this video, please like it and share it around. Please also subscribe to the channel if you want to learn more about Tolkien and the worlds he created and other things that he wrote. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at JRRTLore. And without further ado, I will sign out now as the Tolkien Geek for the Tolkien Lore channel. Namadier.